So all throughout this fall, we are walking chapter by chapter through the book of Romans or Paul's letter to the church at Romans. And so as to try to not get people lost in a 16 chapter books, we've given you a roadmap which talks about what a mess, what a gift, what a God, and what a difference the gospel makes in our life. And so as we've been walking through this, we've been discovering the power of the gospel. And in this last section, chapters 12 through 16, we understand how the gospel transforms us or changes us. Because Paul says, kind of as a thesis to those last four chapters, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern or the, the pattern of this age or this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there is a different way to think in Christ, and that that new way of thinking will transform the way that you love one another, live with one another. And in fact, one of the things he talks about in the rest of chapter 12 is how the gospel changes the way we interact with one another in the larger community of the church. And then Paul zooms out in chapter 13 and says that the gospel not only makes a difference in the way that we treat one another in our smaller communities or in the church, but it also affects every way we interact with all of society. And his primary focus in chapter 13, which I know you're super excited about, is that Paul's focus is on government. And what we're about to talk about in Romans chapter 13 is a Christian view of government. Now, before all your defenses and your walls go up, my goal is to talk about politics today without being political. Do you see the difference? Because I think we need to be able to have these kinds of conversation, but this is not a partisan echo chamber kind of speech. This is that the good news of Jesus Christ and the New Testament has something to say to us about what does transform thinking about government and about society actually look like. And so let's dip our toes in the water for this by talking about a study that came out last year in the United Kingdom that said this. In the UK, 50% of the populace believes in ghosts, but only 20% believe or trust in their government. In fact, 18% in this same study said that they have had a personal encounter with a ghost or an apparition. And so think about this for a minute. Half of society believes in ghosts, but only one in five actually trust the government that's in charge of their society. But this is, as you probably know, a part of a larger trend. Here's, here's a, a chart that kind of demonstrates whoever, you know, whichever was kind of a red period of time for the presidency or a blue period of time. But the overall trajectory since the 1950s has only been in one direction, that it's been down. In fact, the study after study shows, and maybe you've seen some of these before, that every major public institution except for the military in the United States has experienced sharp, precipitous decline in confidence and in trust over the course of the last 60 years or so. It's unbelievable the erosion, the devolving of our confidence in one another and in our larger society. There is a great author by the name of Yuval Levin, who's a social commentator, who puts it this way. He says, we don't think of our institutions as formative, but as performative. When the presidency and Congress are just stages for political performance art, 
when a university becomes a venue for vain virtue signaling, when journalism is indistinguishable from activism, they become harder to trust. They aren't really asking for our confidence just for our attention. Can I have an amen for that? That when you think about the way that we are in our attention economy, we no longer ask to put our trust in these institutions because we want to leverage institutions. So the company that you work for, the company you work for is, is there to help to build your platform not to form you into doing a great mission. And because of this individualism and because of this rampant selfishness in which we have turned inward on ourselves, we have gotten to the point where we no longer trust one another. And we see this most acutely in the way that we think about what does it mean to live in a larger society and to relate to our government. So here's what I hope that we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Romans 13, and we're going to bring three questions that kind of come out of this. What is the role of government according to the gospel? How do we relate to government according to the gospel? And how can the church make any difference in how we relate as a larger society as a gospel? So first, let's talk about first you know, how we're supposed to kind of view the government as Christians. Here is what Paul says in the first verse. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Here's the thing. Government is God's idea. Government is not a necessary evil. Government is the kind of thing where in order for there to be a flourishing society, there has to be a structure out of which there are rules and laws and ways for us to relate to one another within that society. There is no room in Christianity for anarchy. There is no room in Christianity for obstructionists. Way that we are called to live by the gospel doesn't allow us to completely reject the idea of government. Now Paul will continue in verse 4. For he, meaning the government, is God's servant for your good. In other, word, in other words, Paul is talking about how the government is one of God's servants for society, but particularly our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the government does not bear the sword in vain. For the government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so what we notice here in this passage and what Christian scholars have pulled together, for me to just cut to the chase, if you pull together this passage and others like it in the New Testament, that there are two primary purposes of the role of government in society. According to the New Testament, that is this, that the government exists to punish evil and to reward the good. In other words, it is there to protect us and it is there to reward or promote goodness and righteousness within the society. And so the government is there to help to protect you against evil, against people being able to do you harm and others harm. And that the go and that government is also there in order to be able to incentivize how we can live well together. Now, there is a, a, a great 
British theologian by the name of G.K. Chesterton who says that there are three major institutions in Western civilization, three great institutions, government, family, and church. And in the early part of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton gave a warning because he could already see what was happening. And the warning is that if the family starts to decline in society, and if the church starts to decline in society, that the one institution, the one leg of the three-legged stool that's supposed to be all three of them together for a flourishing society, the one that will be left in the government, and in the vacuum of these two things diminishing, the government will start to encroach and be a bigger part of our lives. Do you think that's been happening over the course of the last century? By any empirical standard, it has. And so what we see here is a kind of a transformed view of what is government here for. It is here for the limited capacity, not the exclusive, but the limited capacity of protecting us from harm and enabling an institution to be catalytic for us to live well together. That's the role of government according to the gospel. Then the second question here is, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ relate to the government in our society? And the best answer for this that I saw is from John Stott. John Stott is, uh, is a thinker who said that you can kind of break it down and simplify it this way. Either the church controls the state which is a form of theocracy, or the state can attempt to control the church. Think of the way that Putin treats the Russian Orthodox Church in their society. It's a tool, it's a manipulation of the state. Or, and the way that we're supposed to see it, and the way this is supposed to play out, is the church partners with the state. That we understand that there is a role for good governance, and that we want the governance to do that effectively. And that the government also recognizes that there is a role for the church. And that the church plays a particular role. And that we honor the distinct callings, the vocations of each of these institutions. And that society is at its best when these institutions are actually working in partnership with one another for our well-being. And so the Apostle Paul um, puts it this way. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. What does this mean here? He's, what he's saying here is that the Christian is, yes, subject to governing authorities, but we don't do so just on the basis of out of fear of getting caught. We do so on the basis of our conscience, out of our obedience before God. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. It was something that happened to me when I lived in Southern California. Moved to Southern California, and it, we moved there right in the middle of the 08 financial crisis. And a guy comes to my office, and he says, hey, is this meeting confidential? And I was like, of course it's confidential, unless I believe somebody is at you know, risk of being at harm, or unless I'm required by law to report it. Yes, this conversation is completely confidential between you and me. He goes, oh, okay, all right. Um, he's like, I'm thinking about not paying my mortgage. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Did, like, did you lose your job? And he's like, 
no, I, I didn't lose my job. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, did something happen where you, you can't pay your mortgage? And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I can pay my mortgage. I just think I can get away with not paying it because of the loopholes of what's happening in society right now, and I think I'll even have more money. I might even be able to give more money to the church, he mentioned. And I said to him, friend, you have come to the wrong office. <laughs> because if you think that I'm going to encourage you or bless or sanctify, you made a promise. You made a commitment. And some of those safety net things are there for a reason to try to be a dispensation of mercy. But for you to try to manipulate those things, I don't think he stayed at the church. Because I didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. But we live in the midst of a social contract, do we not? And he, attempting and stumbling as a Christian, was trying to do so on the basis of, I only want to do what I can get away with, as opposed to him having a conscience about who he is supposed to be. T.S. Eliot once says that we are constantly striving to create a system in which nobody has to be good. And there is no way for us to have a society without people being good within that society. Here's how Tim Keller puts it in reference to verse 5 there. Paul's radical principle is this. We obey our government out of our Christian conscience, out of our obedience to God alone. This is radical for it cuts two ways. Two ways that it cuts. On the one hand, we will obey the state even when there are no civil consequences because our motivation is obedience to the God who established the state. On the other hand, we can never submit uncritically to what the state tells us. If it requires us to violate our conscience, we must disobey. Do you see the power in this? That we obey the state because of our conscience, even if the state isn't going to catch us. That we will even do things like joyfully pay our taxes. I know that feels like a really big stretch, but we can even have joy in paying our taxes because we want the well-being of human society. And at the same time, the government's power is limited and under God. And if the government asks you or me or us to do something that is in direct contradiction with God's will, God's word, and God's way, that it is our Christian obligation to disobey the government and to resist. And so think biblically about this for a moment with examples. The Hebrew midwives are brought before Pharaoh, the most powerful figure in the world. They're willing to serve in their role in the midst of slavery, but the minute that Pharaoh asks them to participate in genocide quietly, they won't do it. They disobey. Think about Joseph in Egypt and how Joseph wasn't in it just for himself or his tribe or his family, but Joseph in Egypt was able to actually help to contribute with his gifts of administration for, and vision for the well-being of the Egyptian empire. Think about Esther and her role in being able to influence the government. Think about, uh, think about Jeremiah 
and how God called Jeremiah and us to seek the welfare, even when they were in a period of exile, seek the welfare of the empire who has brought you away from your homeland. Think about Daniel who was told that he shouldn't pray to God anymore. And Daniel still bows a knee to the one true God. Think about Peter who was told by the government not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection. And yet Peter was to defy that order. We seek the welfare of the good and we disobey when it's a direct contradiction to God's will and God's way. Do you see that? And so first question is, what is the Christian view of government? That it's here to protect us and to promote the good and that it is a blessing from God. How do we relate to the government out of our conscience in order to be able to serve God through the well-being of society, but it has limits? And then thirdly, how can the church make a difference? This is what verse 8 says in chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another, who loves one another, has fulfilled the law. Do you see how Paul is saying, he's not just going back here to like a general love one another kind of thing. He is tying what he was saying about government and submission to the key that unlocks all of this. So um, recently I've been reading, uh, and this is kind of a friend of Peachtree, David Brooks, who has been here a couple of times, his, his newest book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And in this book, he divides people into two categories. Are you a diminisher or are you an illuminator? And here's what he says about that. In every crowd, there are diminishers and there are illuminators. Diminishers make people feel small and unseen. They see other people as things to be used, not as persons to be befriended. They stereotype and ignore. They are so involved with themselves that other people are just not on their radar screen. Illuminators, on the other hand, have a persistent curiosity about other people. They have been trained or have trained themselves in the craft of understanding others. They know what to look for and how to ask the right questions at the right time. They shine the brightness of their care on people and make them feel bigger, deeper, respected, lit up. You and I are called to owe no one to anything except to love them. And the way that David Brooks helps us to understand love, not just as an emotional category, but are you the kind of person that diminishes the people around you? Or do you, as having the light of Christ, do you illuminate the person and the persons around you? True story of recent travel, just way too much for me, that's driving me a little crazy. But have you ever parked at Atlanta Park West, that big parking garage next to the airport where you take the tram and you get to the airport and it's like super modern. It points to you where the parking spaces are. You can reserve your parking space, or not your parking space, but you know, a spot in the garage in advance. And so you pull up to the gate and instead of getting a ticket, it scans the kind of the back of your license plate and then it lets you in and then you park and then it knows when you're leaving 
and it scans your license plate again and then it lets you leave and you're not even pulling out a credit card or anything because you've already prepaid for everything. It's very cool unless it stops working. At midnight, I am coming in super late, I am tired, I am cranky, and I pull up to try to leave and this is what the screen says that I need to pay. This was a 48-hour trip, and somehow at $16 a day, I owe the Atlanta Parking Authority $1,104. There's a little button on the screen that says press for help, and I am like pushing it, and I am so tired, and I just want to go home, and this poor woman on the other side of the intercom, she's trying to understand what I'm going through, and I am letting her have it in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I am not paying you $1,104. I do not owe you that money, blah, blah, blah. I am just, and then, do you know what I read right before that encounter? While I was getting off of the plane, I was reading David Brooks' book about, are you a diminisher, are you an illuminator? Do you know what the problem with our political system is? It's me. It's probably you too. You know what's wrong with our society? Our government? We have the candidates and the governance that we cultivate and that we ask for. We are the problem of how this is out of control in an attention economy. We don't ask for their confidence. We just want attention. It's a show. And so our system has a major deficiency in it. And that deficiency lies and that responsibility is within all of us. We want a better government. We have to be better. Paul talks about it in this way. Writing to a church that exists in the capital of the Roman Empire, a far more hostile environment than what we're in right now. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. He is saying, wake up, church. I did that at the first sermon, and one of the choir members woke up because he was actually asleep at that moment in time. (laughs) Wake up. We're drifting, we're on cruise control, we're asleep, and God wants us to wake up to what is happening around us. Can the church wake up? Can the church be activated? Because we can be a part of the solution. We can make a difference with the gospel. I wasn't supposed to be preaching this week on Romans chapter 13. I was supposed to do that last week, and we had a very important interruption. I was supposed to be preaching on Romans chapter 14. As we live, we live to the Lord. As we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we all belong to the Lord. That was supposed to be our stewardship. Well, we're in Romans chapter 13, and so I'm doing what no pastor has ever done in history. Preach on a Christian view of government and then talk about stewardship. And I was kind of complaining about how hard this gymnastics was when all of a sudden it occurred to me. 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The qualified submission that we are to give to the government, give it to government. But God gets our unqualified surrender, our unconditional love and support. Earlier this week, I was in Dallas on your behalf to give Allie Dunnigan a hug on behalf of 7,500 people. And the funeral was remarkable in a lot of ways, but one of the things that struck out to me the most that pulled a lot of strands of life together for me was a man by the name of Tim Cornelson who was in Houston when I was in Houston, when Brian Dunnigan was in Houston. And he was serving as a youth volunteer. Tim was reading the scripture at Brian's funeral. And right before he read the scripture, he told the story of a night when he was a new youth volunteer and he didn't really know what he was doing. And the youth director comes over and he says, hey, you see that 14-year-old kid that's sitting over in the corner? He just told me that he's ready to pray to give his life to Christ. Why don't you go over and pray with him and for him? And so Tim Cornelson, who doesn't really know what he's doing, but is there, goes over and prays with a 14-year-old Brian Dunnigan whose life is now ready to be surrendered to God. And imagine the trajectory that that changed over the course of 30 years from him being 14 and being far from God and him being 44 and having 3,000 people show up at that funeral and over 15,000 online. Not because he's a rock star, not because he's famous, but because of the witness and the God that he serves. Here's why this is important. That moment doesn't happen unless there's a vibrant youth ministry. And that takes the church being resourced and fueled. And that moment doesn't happen unless there's a safe place for the church to gather in a compelling environment. And it takes the church being the church and it takes resources pulling together in order for that to happen. And that moment with a 14-year-old boy doesn't happen unless there's an activated gospel community where there are volunteers that are tapped on the shoulder and say, hey, would you be willing to help? Would you be willing to serve? And that doesn't happen unless there are vibrant worship services and where people's lives are being changed, they're being challenged. None of that happens unless the church is living out its calling. Because what the Apostle Paul told us at the very outset, if we know what the gospel kind of understanding of the role of the church is, this is the gospel understanding of what we're all about. That you and I are a community of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And so, yeah, we can talk about here's what the government needs to do from a Christian point of view and how we can change that government. And at the very same time, we're not just rendering to Caesar. We are rendering under God the things that are God. So I hesitate no longer in preaching on government and taxes and submission and stewardship of the church all at the same time. Because these things go together. That in order to impact this world, We totally need transformed thinking with regards to our institutions and our government. And we need transformed thinking in regard to the church. I just read that in the year 2000, two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. In 2021, so basically 20 years later, less than half give to charity. In 20 years, a huge portion of the population just stopped giving. Not just to the church, to anyone. You think the declines in church attendance and the declines in generosity are maybe related to one another? Do you think that we will ever create a system in which nobody has to be good? We could have the greatest, cleanest democracy in the world. But if we're still a mess, we won't make a difference. The greatest national debt is not the trillions of dollars you see on the clock. This is the greatest national debt. Churches not owing up to the fact that we are to live out of love and generosity of what God has given to us. So let's let the church be the church. And let's have the government be the government. And let's partner together to make a great society. Let's pray together. Lord, will you expand the scope with some transformed thinking about even our political realm and help us to learn how to trust you and to trust one another. In fact, help us to have a personal encounter with you in the midst of an age that just seems to all be about performance. Help us to be a part of a forming and shaping role in our society. Help us to see the goodness that you do even through our government. For us to pray for our leaders as they protect us and they promote the common good. God, protect the family and the church from waning so much that the government feels like that it has to take over. Strengthen our partnership with the local community and the state and the nation. Help us to be people of conscience that we don't live out of fear of getting caught, but out of obedience to you alone. And in those moments when we are asked to do something that is against your word and your way, help us to resist. Thank you that in the midst of the qualified submission that we have to the government, that we can be unqualified and unconditional in our surrender to you. And that we will owe no one anything except to love. Forgive me for diminishing others. 
Help me to be an illuminator and make the stewardship of this year out of our grateful goodness where 14-year-olds will take steps of faith and our lives will be changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.